is an Odyssey original. This is KDAX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. A big week ahead for the Supreme Court. As the future of affirmative action could be at stake, we go in-depth into that and some other big cases the court will decide. And is Vladimir Putin on his last legs in Russia, or is he stronger than ever? Also, where did the magic go for Disney movies? We start with major Supreme Court rulings that are due to come out this week. Jonathan Enton is a constitutional law professor at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So let's start with affirmative action, which ostensibly is about uh, universities, but depending upon how the court rules, would have a profound impact on things other than university admissions, yes? It could, uh, depending on how the court writes the opinion. Uh, But uh, even a relatively narrow opinion, and I'd be surprised if it was really narrow, but even a relatively narrow opinion could have broader implications for government contracting, maybe even for redistricting. Aside from affirmative action, what uh, possible ruling could we get from the Supreme Court that might be uh, shocking to people who might just overturn a lot of what we assume would stay true? Well, there are are a couple of significant cases that deal with religion. Um, One of them uh, also has potentially significant implications for gay rights. There's There's a case pending that will come down this week uh, involving a Colorado web designer who does not want to design websites for same-sex couples. She's arguing that this would violate her religious beliefs, and she is further arguing that she is entitled to a kind of religious exemption from otherwise applicable civil rights laws. Uh, Now, the Supreme Court in recent years has been pretty sympathetic to religious exemption claims, Uh, but uh, this is a case that could sweep pretty broadly. There's also another religion case up there this week uh, asking how much an employer has to do to accommodate a worker who has religious reasons for not working on Saturdays, for example, and how much of an imposition is it, or how much of an imposition may the employer make on other workers uh, to accommodate that that uh, religious workers' objections to working on Saturdays. Okay, and that uh, brings us to another expected ruling on uh, President Biden's student debt Forgiveness. What, what? What's before the court when it comes to that? Well, there there are two cases up there. Um, one is one was brought by a couple of student loan borrowers who are objecting to what the president did because they don't qualify for the relief that the president provided. Uh, and I think there's a serious question about whether those borrowers actually have legal standing to pursue the case. That is, how have they been harmed by what the president has done? They are no worse off than they would be before. Uh, There's a a separate case 
brought by a number of states that argue that the president exceeded his legal authority in providing the the loan forgiveness program that he did. Now, it turns out there may also be a standing issue in that case, um, but that standing question may be less difficult for those states than for, than it will be for the individual borrowers. Now, if the court reaches the merits and strikes down the president's initiative in this area, that could have broader implications for presidential authority more generally, uh, because the president relied on a particular statute and uh, some folks think that the president's reading of that statute uh, is at least a, a little bit creative. It's not necessarily beyond the pale, but uh, it, 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 it's a bit of, it could be a bit of a stretch. Very quickly, do you think uh, Congress will get to the point where they're going to step in because of these recent revelations of uh, some unethical doings of certain justices and maybe uh, pass some uh, ethics rules and enforce them on the court? Would constitutionally they be able to do that? I think that the that Congress could constitutionally impose ethics requirements on the court. Uh, Congress has already imposed various kinds of ethical restrictions on all federal judges, including Supreme Court justices. Uh, for example, saying that that justices are not allowed to or, and judges are not allowed to sit in cases where they have a financial interest in the outcome or where a close family member is is tied is involved in the case in one in in one form or another um i think that the argument that somehow congress doesn't have the po constitutional authority here uh, is a little bit creative um but I, I don't i don't find that persuasive i think the really complicated issues about what congress might want to do have to do with the unique nature of the supreme court there are only nine justices. If if someone on the court does not participate in a case because he's because of recusal or disqualification, that opens up the possibility of a deadlocked court because there's no way to replace a justice on a temporary basis. Whereas in lower courts, if one member of a court of appeals or one district judge has to disqualify from a case there's always going to be another judge available to, to sit in. Right. So the precise rules for the Supreme Court might have to take account of those institutional differences. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan Enton, a constitutional law professor at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio. Was it a protest or a rebellion that the world watched unfold in Russia over the weekend? Troops from the private military group Wagner moved toward Moscow before turning back Victoria Pardini is an expert on Russia and Eastern Europe for the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Victoria, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much for having me. So let me uh, throw this at you. Vladimir Putin apparently just a few minutes ago went on uh, television in Russia, and he told the Russian people, and I'm quoting now, the entire Russian society was united and rallied everyone, and that's the reason he says why what happened over the weekend failed. Is he right? Well, I think that's a very typical uh, Vladimir Putin type response. He, he, uh, as you mentioned, called upon patriotism and the Russian people. I think what is probably more likely in this case is that as Prigozhin drew nearer 
to the capital, he realized he didn't have the support that he thought he did among the elites, and so decided that it was probably best to dial back his efforts. Um, it was also kind of clear that there wasn't a real goal in mind as he went further with this, what he called um, a, quote, march for justice toward Mar Moscow. Uh, how unlike Putin is it to apparently let him go, uh, go to Belarus and uh, call it exile or what you will? Uh, do you think that we're going to see uh, uh, Prigozhin fall out of a window sometime soon? You know, it's hard to say. And it's, you know, it, like you said, it's it's very much not in his character for that to happen. Um, I think it all remains really murky right now. Uh, there are some sources and I haven't really seen any clue that Prigozhin is even in Belarus right now. So his fate, I think, will be determined over the next several days and weeks. But I don't have a lot of confidence that he'll get away with this, so to speak, without any repercussions. This was really the first uh, very open challenge that, that we have seen, serious challenge, apparently, to uh, Vladimir Putin's power. And he's been in place for, what, two decades now. Mm -hmm. um, how serious of a threat now is it to him in the long run now that presumably other people, even within his inner circle, have seen that he's potentially vulnerable? I mean, this group, the Wagner group, did get... They set up to about, what, less than 200 miles on their march to Moscow. Right, exactly. I think this is this is a big threat to the Kremlin and to Putin's power in particular. Like you said, there have been challenges and opposition to his leadership over the past two decades. But this is really the first big threat from inside of his circle of elites. Um, I do think that, generally speaking, he's safe for now because... The same elites that are propping him up need him to stay in power to remain, retain their own power. But um, I do just I think this is a real evidence of major chinks in his armor right now. Um, but uh, long term, uh, how do how do uh, his chances for survival uh, hold out? Because Gorbachev faced a, a, a kind of a coup attempt that didn't work. But then a few months later, he was gone. Mm hmm. I think that Vladimir Putin has been exceptionally good at centralizing power over the past two decades. And so I think that it could very likely be that this is sort of a public perception issue, but he's able to turn messaging in such a way that he's able to retain his grip on power because he controls so much of um, the elite loyalty as well as power in the regions. Um, and so I think it's it's a different situation where he's just a harder... Uh, a harder fortress to break into than other leaders. Does what happened on the weekend have an impact on the war in Ukraine? Well, it's going to be an interesting question to see. I think that, uh, well, I know that over the weekend, shelling continued in Ukraine um, and the Wagner group, while they were able to retake uh, Bakhmut a few weeks ago, they aren't the only fighters, of course, in Russia. Um so I don't think it will it will have a huge bearing on the actual fighting on the ground. I think the major thing is the messaging of the public perception, which is a big challenge for Putin, because that's where a lot of his power lies is in the messaging that he's able to control. And this was a big hit to that messaging. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Victoria Pordina, expert on Russia and Eastern Europe for the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. You know, uh, Prigozhin, uh, who headed the uh, Wagner Group or heads of the Wagner Group, uh, was for a long time known as Putin's chef because he would cater affairs uh, for Putin. My guess is 
that Putin will not be accepting any food from no. him anytime in the future. No, no hot dogs. You are listening to KX in Depth with Charles Feldman. I'm Rob Archer. And uh, later in the show, some promising new weight loss medication could come in pill form. That sounds so good. Uh, right now, though, if you take a flight this summer, there's a chance your flight could get delayed because of 5G. Well, sort of. Uh, here to explain is Dan Bubb, former airline pilot and professor and aviation history expert at UNLV. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, quickly, for those of us who are dumb, uh, explain why 5G is going to affect our travel this way. Okay, so so what happens is uh, with some commercial aircraft, particularly the larger aircraft, perhaps like a Boeing 777, Airbus 350, or 747, because the pilots are sitting so high in the cockpit, when they come into land, it can be hard for them to see the runway. And so what can happen with 5G is you have what's called a radio altimeter. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of the clips on YouTube or whatever when planes are coming into land, but you'll hear a voice kind of do a countdown like 50, 40, 30, 20. And what that voice is doing is it's telling the pilots how high above the runway they are. And so 5G has a potential to interfere with that. And that can be very problematic, particularly when you have planes landing in low visibility conditions. And that could lead to delays because... Because of bad weather. If you have inclement weather where the visibility is very low, uh, airlines could potentially delay those flights. So is there not a way to shield uh, the radio altimeters from the 5G signals? There are. Uh, many other aircraft have them. However, airlines have not yet finished outfitting all of their planes with those capabilities. So there still are some aircraft, about 20% or so, that are still vulnerable to this. And is it a costly thing to retrofit an airline, or is that one of the reasons why that some airlines don't have all their fleets retrofitted? Yeah, it, it's not too expensive. It's more time-consuming than anything. So it's just a matter of taking those aircraft out of the uh, flight line and installing them with this new equipment. I, I'm kind of curious, how did this uh, – I think they knew this problem was coming – uh, why are we waiting until now to to rush to finish uh, retrofitting these planes? Uh, why was this not something they did uh, before 5G even began to get rolled out? I, I think it's because airlines are trying to save money. And, of course, you know, it takes a while for the government to implement these measures, uh, certainly with the FAA. So I think airlines are trying to hold out as long as they could uh, to make money before they finally had to acquiesce and install this new equipment. Isn't there, though, some phone company culpability here, too? Because if memory serves me right, uh, the uh, government, the FAA, got the uh, phone companies kicking and, and screaming along the way to cut back uh, the strength of their 5G transmitters near airports, uh, which raises the question, can't they go back to the phone companies and say, until every aircraft is now equipped, you just can't have that power boost you're hoping to have? Absolutely. They potentially could do that. Uh, the best thing for passengers to do is do as the flight attendants instruct them to do, which is to either turn their phones off or put them in airplane mode, in which case they're safe. But yes, uh, technically, the airlines, the FAA can go back to the phone companies and say, hey, you know, we're, we weren't entirely ready for this. I mean, 5G still is relatively new. Uh, you should have given us more time before you launch 5G to retrofit our planes to avoid these these type of situations. 
this a harbinger of the future? Because, you know, our mobile, uh, mobile devices are becoming absolutely necessary to, to live these days. And they are going to be carrying more and more and more information as they get more uh, complicated. So, you know, we're talking uh, less choking, 6G, 7G, whatever, whatever G you want. Uh, they're going to be rolling out this stuff. And that might interfere with other uh, very important uh, electronic equipment that are on these airliners, right? So are we just going to be back here again in the next few years? Uh, they definitely have the potential to interfere not just with the radial altimeter, but with also other navigation instruments. Uh, hopefully, we're not back here again in a few years. Uh, hopefully, the airlines will be able to act faster. They'll be able to work uh, in collaboration with the phone companies to make sure that there's sufficient time to outfit these instruments so that we don't revisit this problem. All right. Thanks so much. That is uh, Dan Bubb, former airline pilot and professor and aviation history expert at UNLV. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Hey, remember when uh, Disney movies, just any Disney film, crushed it at the box office? Anything labeled Disney or Pixar, you knew it was going to be a major hit. Yeah, but now it seems like the box office is crushing Disney. A recent analysis finds that Disney lost nearly $900 million on recent movies. With us now is Valiant Renegade, who is a box office analyst who crunched the numbers, and he also has a YouTube channel. How you doing? Very good. Thanks for having me on, gentlemen. Appreciate it. $900 million is nothing to sneeze at, even for a company the size of Disney. So what is it doing wrong? Well, I think there's a lot of issues right now. I think, uh, and, and that's a whole conversation in and of itself, but let's just say I think the content they're pumping out just is not resonating with audiences anymore. I think Disney has kind of shot themselves in the foot with their uh, aggressive nature towards collapsing post-theatrical windows into streaming proprietary services like Disney+. Plus. That's cost Disney a lot of money. Uh, almost a billion dollars a quarter in losses on direct-to-consumer with the Walt Disney Company in the last several years. It piles up. You can't just keep whipping out the Disney Plus credit card to make up the difference everywhere else when you have theatrical failures. Yeah, you talk about the creative aspect of this. And, you know, when when you think about what Disney has in its stable, it's got the Star Wars, it's got all the Marvel films. And so one would look at that and go, how can they not make money? Because those are such big brands. But the brands are not that big anymore, at least not with some audiences that kind of declining interest. Are they making too many Star Wars and too many Marvel superhero movies? Well, Marvel, it seems like they've exhausted uh, the audience as it is to this point, or at least not making the kind of movies that they used to that really engage them. I mean, when you start doing inflationary adjustments for ticket prices that have gone up 20 and 30 percent since uh, theaters uh, shut down with COVID, uh, you start seeing audiences dropped off maybe 50 percent or more in many cases with these Marvel films. In the case of Star Wars, well, frankly, they haven't made anything new theatrically uh, since 2019 was the last movie that came out. They haven't put anything into pre-production until just recently they announced some new films that they target to put out in the next couple of years. But we don't know what happens with that yet. We'll have to wait and see. Do mouse heads roll because of this? You know, they should. Uh, you start looking around at other studios. You start looking at what uh, guys like David Zaslov and the whole new team at Warner Brothers is doing since they took over following that reverse Morris Trust spinoff from AT&T where they merged Warner into Discovery. And they have they have gutted that place and they have tried to find uh, economies of scale, cost cutting measures. Obviously, Disney is trying to do the same thing now. But, you know, making movies and making television shows is a very, very long gestational process. You know, from the time you greenlight something to the time it gets out there, you're talking about two, maybe three years. 
And uh, looking at the streaming aspect of this, Paramount Plus just canceled uh, four shows and in some cases pulling them off the streaming platform entirely. So they're not there anymore. Is Disney uh, doing the same thing? And isn't that what brought people to streaming? And if they pull content off of the platform, isn't that going to dry up subscribers? It could possibly, of course, it all depends at the end of the day, what shows or programming or content they elect to remove. And are they removing it to gut it, to take a write-off, or are they removing it to then turn around and license it out to another third-party streaming service that would generate them better cash flows, uh, you know, better revenues on these products? I don't think Disney is going to relinquish any of their headline content, their, their big IPs, things like you mentioned before, Star Wars, Marvel. I think Bob Iger has made it clear that they're going to keep those home on Disney+. Plus. But when you look back historically, when the entire Marvel slate, before they started making TV shows at least with the movies, the Marvel movies for years, were licensed out to places like Netflix. And that was bringing in billions of dollars to Disney after the theater. So if you had a bump in the road and you had a loss or something that didn't quite break even, no big deal. You were making it up on the back end. And of course, most Hollywood studios worked like that for many, many, many years. But now that we're in this streaming game where everything has to be sacrificed at the uh, the almighty altar of the streaming gods, they're, they're realizing quickly that this doesn't work out long range when it comes to the uh, the actual the actual finances. Do you think that there is also at play here a certain degree of consumer confusion about brand identity? I, I know when I was growing up, I, there was a phase when my parents would take me to a Disney film. Then and when I got to reach a certain age, I wouldn't be caught dead going to a Disney film. Uh, <laughs> do you think that that there's confusion now? about what the brand Disney represents. I think there is to some extent. I mean, of course, uh, Disney has embroiled itself in, uh, you know, a lot of social and political battles. It probably, in retrospect, shouldn't have gotten itself involved in. It, it, it's only, I think, served to hurt the brand. Uh, we've seen that with with polling data and people's uh, uh, you know, their their perspective of what Disney is. I don't think it's as strong a brand as it once was. Uh, but I also think that um, from from my best perspective, the Disney creative brain trust just isn't there anymore. Um, yeah, it, a lot of those folks that made things like Pixar and Disney animation do what they did for years. Guys like John Lasseter and that whole crew, a lot of them, they're all gone now. And a lot of them are over at Skydance Animation, which, by the way, uh, is now contracted with Apple. <laughs> so they're, they're basically all the Pixar guys that made Pixar what it was are back working with Apple again. Hmm. I think that's a big problem for Disney, and it, it's showing. Uh, there, there's just not enough talent there in that pool to put out the kind of films they had before that became these massive cultural zeitgeist pieces. Uh, and and one final question, uh, Valiant Renegade, uh, how cool would it be if uh, Pixar decided to make a superhero film of their own and uh, name the character Valiant Renegade? <laughs> I'd take it. I think that'd be good advertising. <laughs> free, you I, can't I, beat I that. Hope, I hope the movie would be good. <laughs> it's I, I, got, I, I have to ask, is that, I mean, I never asked this question, but I got to. Is that your real name? Uh, we'll go with yes. <laughs> we'll go, we'll go <laughs> with yes. answer. We'll go with yes. <laughs> Valiant Renegade, box it's office analyst. Name. It's yeah, a great name. Terrific name. I'm changing my name to that. Uh, <laughs> box office analyst uh, crunched all the numbers about what's happening with Disney. I'll go with yes. Well, people who use Ozempic and a similar drug to lose weight have got to get injections, but... 
A lot of people who need to lose weight don't like the idea of getting, you know, multiple shots. Well, they may not have to anymore. Results of uh, two clinical trials point toward the progress drug companies made in developing pills that would help with this weight loss. Dr. Catherine Saunders, clinical professor of medicine at Weill, uh, Cornell Health, and co-founder of IntelliHealth. That's a weight loss center. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So if this pill works, how far away is it? So the Novo Nordisk, the, the drug manufacturer, is planning to file for FDA approval later this year, and it takes about 10 months from, from the time they file. So sometime next year, we can expect to have an oral version of semaglutide that will be more effective than the oral version that we have available today. So very exciting. Exciting, but there's always downsides to every upside, right? Uh, I mean, there are some uh, nasty, could be some nasty uh, after effects, side effects from the uh, injections that people use, and maybe some people shouldn't be using them at all. And is there any concern that you have that by making it a lot simpler and putting this into pill form, you may have more people who maybe don't really need it becoming a sort of lifelong uh, consumer of this medication? Absolutely. So these medications are, are associated with a variety of gastrointestinal side effects. So those include nausea, reflux, vomiting, if the nausea is very severe, uh, diarrhea, and constipation. But with these medications, when they're prescribed appropriately to patients who are good candidates for these medications, and when they're prescribed at low doses to start, and when the dose is increased slowly as needed and as tolerated, these medications can be very, very tolerable. And how expensive do you think these pills might be? Great question, because that's the, the big issue right now with the injectables, that they're extremely expensive and not always covered by insurance. Um, I assume that the oral version may be less expensive because part of the cost uh, has to do with the auto-injector pen. So my hope is that the, the cost will be less. Let me circle back to what you just said about, you know, if these medications, if these pills are, uh, I think you said, prescribed appropriately to the, to the right patients, they're effective and, and uh, the side effect profile can be managed. But uh, you know as well as I do that there are communities, and I'm not going to single out anyone in particular, but there are communities where if a patient walks into their physician and says, I want this medication, that physician is very likely to want to please that patient who is perceived to be more of a customer than a patient, uh, making it more likely in some cases for that drug to be given to people, even though it might be inappropriate for them to have it. Do you agree? I do agree. And, you know, these medications have not been studied among patients or among people who have a normal body mass index and want to lose five pounds. This oral version of semaglutide will receive an FDA indication for obesity or overweight with at least one related health complication. So the purpose of these medications isn't just to lose five pounds. The purpose is to really treat the disease of obesity 
for the goal of improving health outcomes, such as, you know, sleep apnea can be um, improved or resolved with a significant amount of weight loss, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, cardiovascular disease. There are over 200 weight-related health complications. And the goal of using what we call anti-obesity medications is to improve or resolve weight-related health complications, not just to, to lose five pounds if you're normal weight. But am I correct, doctors, once a drug is approved, can use it off-label? So if a patient wants to use it to lose five pounds, and if the doctor is willing to go along, that's perfectly legal. It can. It, we, we hear stories about this happening, and that's absolutely true. Um, and, and that's when people get into more trouble. That's when we see side effects. Again, these medications haven't been studied in these populations. And when this the, these medications are used among people who have normal weight, there's a much, much, much higher chance of having much more severe gastrointestinal side effects. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Catherine Saunders, a uh, clinical professor of medicine at Wild Cornell Health, also co-founder of IntelliHealth, a weight loss center. The sound effects, uh, sound effects, the, uh, <laughs> the, sound, the, the sound effects of this drug are. Oh, well, well, some of the after effects would create sound effects. Right, I, they I would. Suppose. That's very uh, true. But, but some of the effects do not sound very pleasant at no, all. No, I was thinking of the constipation and diarrhea, which one wonders, how do you have both at the same time? And I try not to think of either. No, don't think of those. Get that out of your head right now and uh keep it out of your head for about 24 hours 23 yeah. and then i'll feel better and then you'll feel better okay. and we'll come back and do in depth again tomorrow at 1 p.m hopefully without the sound effects